0: what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions thank you for joining us in this episode of the fundraising talent podcast here's your host author fundraiser and master trainer jason lewis
1: hi podcast listeners this is jason lewis and i am your host for the fundraising talent podcast i want to thank you for joining us today to the show that's shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep personal relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong partners. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insight into their hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? Our team at Responsive is looking forward to getting back on the road in 2022. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All you need to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 to 40 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There's no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, reach out to me today. Before I introduce today's guest, let me say that we're having important conversations here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with individuals whose voices matter in the fundraising space and the nonprofit sector in general. Sometimes our opinions clash and sometimes they align. What's important is that we're having the conversation. If you have an opinion, whether I agree with you or not, let's hear it, let's elevate it, and let's wrestle with it. I want you to influence my thinking on these things. And more importantly, I want your ideas and opinions to influence the thousands of listeners who are downloading our podcast every month. If you want to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, reach out and let's make sure you're included in an upcoming lineup. Hi, Mallory. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with me today. Uh, We have just, uh, we didn't even know each other four minutes ago, and uh, (laughs) and we're already laughing, so I'm looking to this conversation. Um, Sounds like uh, you're raising children and I'm raising, my wife and I've been raising children for some time. So we sort of connected on that for a few minutes. Um, So uh, I'm sure this will be a great conversation. Uh, Mallory, before we dive into what is your big idea or bold opinion today, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners?
2: Awesome. Well, first of all, just thank you so much for having me. I am really excited. I've been an admirer of your work for a while and really excited to have this conversation. Um, So my name is Mallory Erickson. I have been, I have spent my entire career in the nonprofit sector. I joke that I have done sort of every leadership role in nonprofit with the exception of technology. Um, I became like so many people in the sector, an accidental fundraiser when I started to get promoted up through the ranks, found myself first in a managing director role and then an executive director role where I really hated fundraising. I always would say it was actually my least favorite part of my job. Um, And what really fundamentally shifted the way that I approach fundraising was having an incredible sort of set of life experiences that converged at once where I was certified as an executive coach. I got trained in habit building and behavior change and trained in design thinking, none of which was really intended to transform my fundraising, but really did. Um, And that sort of set me on this path to coach fundraisers to be embodied and emboldened and aligned um, with the work and the impact that they're trying to make. Um, I do that primarily through my core the power partners formula, but really everything that I do in this space, um, all of the teaching is really about how we move more money into the sector, move more money to address the injustices, inequality um, issues by, by really leveraging all these fundraising superpowers that we already have.
1: I like that. So my son, uh, before we dive into your big idea, the Pink, my son uh, took his sibling's We'll talk about superpowers for a minute. Hmm. Uh, my son took his siblings, his older two siblings, to see Superman back. I think that was right before. Super. I think this, the latest Superman film came out. Um, anyway, when I hang up with you this afternoon, Mallory, uh, Gordon, our oldest son, is taking me. He wanted to take me and his youngest sister uh, out to see the the latest Superman. I'm uh, not Superman, Spider Man, Spider Man film. Have you seen the latest Spider-Man? Oh fun. Film? I
2: have not. Yeah. Yeah. I am way behind yeah, you, on my movie yeah. watching.
1: Well, you've got you said you said you've got a little little one at
2: home. Yeah, that's true. I've watched uh, Frozen four hundred and fifty times right. in the last few weeks, but other than that, I'm behind.
1: Right. And it's just is it just the little one just the the two and a half year old is yes. that, is that all okay okay so yeah. you're at a time of life where so we have four children and they're all teenagers and they like to watch so they've they've gotten beyond the the frozen era if you will <laughs> <laughs> thank we, you for letting know, me
2: know there's a beyond <laughs> yes
1: there is, there is definitely a beyond they do. um so they know when all the Marvel, all those sort of superhero things. And now we're getting excited. I mean, even my 19-year-old is getting excited about this latest. There's a latest iteration of uh, Jurassic Park that's coming out and stuff. So um, mm. that's what you get to when you uh, give, give it about 15 years, probably 12 <laughs> more years. About 10 or 12 years. <laughs> you're at two and a half years old right now. Um, get, give it 10 years and you will be in that zone. <laughs> So
2: I'm excited. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. So, Mallory, (laughs) we ask our guests to come on here with a big idea or bold opinion. We do not ask for you to prep that with us. We don't ask you to tell us necessarily what that is. So, you might throw us something completely out in left field. What do you got for us today?
2: Mm. So, my big idea is that fundraisers and nonprofit leaders actually already have ninety-five percent of everything they need to be amazing fundraisers. And that the work-
1: uh, Are we talking to an asset-based thinker?
2: We are.
1: Yes, I love
2: Uh, it. (laughs) And that really the work that we need to do inside this sector is to rewrite some of the overarching narratives and the internal narratives that hold us back from being able to access what we already deeply know to be true.
1: Yeah, that's really exciting. I don't think, Mallory, we have had a conversation about asset-based thinking and Mm -hmm. sort of, and and honestly, to sort of tee this up, because I I have a sense of where you're going to go with this, I don't think that there's a cohort of people in our seat, like where you and I are Mm -hmm. at in these advisory roles, that has really bet on asset-based thinking. I think most Mm -hmm. of our quote-unquote competition in this space has overbet, you know, has become overly invested in notions of scarcity. Mm. Um, and, um, and, and I think it actually gives us a competitive advantage. So let's talk about it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's interesting because when I was a fundraiser, it it was so easy to get lost in a scarcity mindset, right? Everything, because all of those messages are everywhere. It's just becomes this sort of status quo for, For how we operate. And then maybe I would hear once in a while this abundance mindset, have an abundant mindset. But when you're in this deep scarcity place, abundance feels light years away. I did not know how to access an abundance mindset from a place of scarcity. And so yeah. for me, asset based thinking, that's the bridge. Like that's the way that everyone can start to tap into the value that they hold, the opportunities that they have, and to really start to like shift that whole conversation inside my course, we do something called asset mapping. And it was crazy because I created it. You know, I have executive coaching tools in there as well. But this was actually part of the strategy component. And it weaves into sort of how they build their strategy around who the right partners are for them. But what happened when people started to asset map is just their entire experience as fundraisers changed. They just started to sit at tables with funders totally differently. They started to see all of the different value that their organization had, all the different value that they as a leader had. And it like did some of that kind of rewiring around how they showed up, which, and I was like, okay, this.
1: I've never thought about it that way, but it's interesting that you sort of tee up the idea of asset-based thinking, framing it around the idea of sitting at the table, um, mm. because it it sort of makes me think about the idea. You know, we're oftentimes sitting across the table from a donor for whom we assume has all the assets. But it sounds Mm -hmm. like you're describing and you're totally right on. I think this is where you're going here. Um, You're sitting at the lunch table, for example, with a major donor. And when you start, when you come to the table with your own understanding of what your own assets are, then the assets that they have, that they bring, are not nearly as intimidating. And they don't necessarily, we don't have to sort of perceive them in sort of this superior role. I've never thought about it that way, Mallory. Never. Yes. I'm not, oh, my I'm not, gosh. I'm not, just, I'm not just flirting with you or anything here. I'm, I'm, this is good. I like this.
2: Yeah. So, okay. So that's exactly it, in my opinion. Like Because I think there are so many things that we know to be true about power dynamics and influence and all yes. of these things. And when we think about some of the, the historical issues around, like, restricted funding, right? In my opinion, so much restricted funding is happening because a donor says an offhanded comment about something they're interested in. They don't recognize how much influence they have in that moment. The fundraiser is like, oh, they want to buy the truck. They want to buy the truck. And they don't ever sort of go deeper there and say, well, tell me about what's so inspiring to you about the idea of funding a truck, because this whole power dynamic has been created based on a belief that money is the only thing of value. Money is the only asset at the table. And I think that's fundamentally wrong. And that when we start to understand that, we start to see all of the other value, the entire conversation shifts. And we can focus too then on alignment. It's just—it's jo- not just like, I need money and you have money. Will you give me some of your money? It's like, are we aligned on trying to create the same change here or the same community or the same world? And what are the different assets that we're each bringing to that table to contribute to that shared goal? Some of what you're contributing might be money. What I'm contributing is over here, but it just really starts to shift the whole dynamic.
1: Okay. You lost me on the truck. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Is the truck, is the truck what the donor is? I mean, is the truck what the fundraiser is coming to the table? I want to make sure you use the truck example. Is the truck what the fundraiser is coming to the table, asking the donor to buy? Is is that why you mentioned the truck or what was the truck reference? Oh,
2: what I was saying is that, sorry, that was not clear. What I was meaning to describe is that I think there are all these ways when we set up a power dynamic where the funder has all of the power, all of the value at the table, there are all these downstream implications of that, like having more money restricted, for example, because we know from the science that people in positions of power have more more influence and really underestimate their influence. So it doesn't allow when we go into these conversations or we sit at this table with only one asset, the asset being the the money, we center that in the conversation in a way that doesn't give us the opportunity to challenge things like A restricted funding idea being thrown out there, right? And we sort of just accept that because we have our eyes on just closing the money, just closing the money instead of recognizing all the assets that we're bringing to the table through the impact of our organization, but through a ton of other things as well. And once we do, then the influence and the power dynamics and all those things start to shift so that we're able to not just sort of take whatever money is suggested um, that was sort of like the truck example, but really be able to yes. go deeper with our donors. Does that make sense?
1: Yes, yes. And is that, is the, you know, there's a lot of conversation about what what in effect should be centered in these conversations. And anybody mm-hmm. who's getting pushback from me is generally hearing that we need to center the relationship, not center mm-hmm. any one player at the table, for example. Mm-hmm. Is there something about us, and I've not connected the dots in this sort of frame of thinking, but I'm interested in your thoughts. So when if we come to the table, sort of centering the relationship so so it's mm-hmm. the relationship that's important not any one player or actor mm-hmm. at the table mm-hmm. and 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 if we've sort of if we're peers in in essence we we both bring assets to the conversation does that make that sort of cuz you're exactly right we don't want to center this conversation around the money um, but I think it's just as problematic, and maybe you would agree, that oftentimes we come to the table trying to center our vision or our mission, mm. and that crowds the conversation equally as much, does it not?
2: Mm. Totally. I completely agree. Yeah. So I think what you're saying about centering the relationship is is the core of all of this. And the relationship includes all of these different components and space for everyone and all of the different assets at play, just like any relationship that we have in our lives, right? Like we don't have, you know, I'll hear from folks all the time. I have a really deep relationship. We have a really close relationship with these funders. But then when we talk about them asking them questions about something or getting clarity around something, they they don't want to do it. And so I'm like, okay, so then what, how are you defining close relationship? Because in a close relationship with a friend, in a close relationship with a partner, I would definitely feel comfortable getting clarity around their expectations around something. And so I think what you're saying is really important is like, what does it look like to center the relationship and to do that in a healthy way that lets all the pieces of the puzzle be transparent and at play?
1: Yeah, so let's go back to what you what you the the big idea that you sort of started with because I really want I, if if there's anything that our listeners have heard us talking about with our guests, even the last probably 50, 50 episodes and certainly almost all the way through the pandemic, it's this idea that the story that we've been told. You you started off with the idea hmm. that fundraisers have ninety to ninety five percent of what they already need. It's already sort of there. And I think that's the story that they have been – it's the opposite of that story that they've been told. And I think a lot of times it's people like you and I who get the privilege of being on platforms like this or being at the front of an AFP conference or something that have told them a different story. To tell them that they already have the technology that they need, that they already have the staff that they need, and to tell them that the donors that they have in their database are the donors they already need is to, in some ways – Prevent the person at the front of the room from selling them something? Are, are we at that place mm. where we need to realize that?
2: Mm. Well, gosh, it's such a good question. I think there are always, just like with business, there are moments where you're going to be sort of up-leveling the the tools that you need around you, right? And so I'm not trying to say that you'll never need new technology tools or you'll never need support around certain things. But I feel like in fundraising, the reason why it was so important for me to sort of start that way is I feel like a way I felt as a fundraiser for so long was that because I felt uncomfortable i must be doing it wrong and yeah. that i that there was no way that good fundraisers felt the way that i felt right and so i i thought there was like this secret to fundraising hit that everyone else knew That I didn't know. And so there's a few pieces to this. One is normalizing the discomfort that comes around talking about money and recognizing that that's where some of this is rooted in. Right. And that's not about you not having what you need. That's about you operating in a system that's telling certain narratives that's contributing to how you feel about certain things. And then recognizing that you have what you need to take that next step. So do you have everything you need to grow by $15 million in two years? Maybe not. But you have everything you need to take that productive next step to help build your organization. And the overwhelming amount of narratives that tell you that you don't are paralyzing, in my opinion, this sector.
1: So what are they being told they're lacking the most? oh
2: gosh I mean I think they're I think they're being told that they're lacking the right strategy the right kind of shiny object whether it's like an uh you know in this virtual world an event management platform they're they don't have the exact right board training they yeah, don't have yeah. the exact right like for me it's more about that they're being sold or like being told that they can't move forward without these things. So it's not that those things aren't wonderful products, right? Sure, but it's sure. just that they shouldn't be in the way of fundraisers being able to take that next right action.
1: Like I I tend to think that like you you said in your introduction, if if we could get If we would stop convincing fundraisers that they're lacking whatever we're convincing they're lacking, you also wouldn't have this notion of I hate fundraising, which is, you know, sort of that initial response that you said that you had towards this idea. What is it that what is part of that story that that they're that we're being fed, you know, at the first AFP conference that we show up Mm. for that? That is that in some ways perpetuates that same underlying I hate fundraising um, Mm -hmm. and also convinces me that I'm lacking something. I mean, I've Mm -hmm. got my opinions on that, but I'm but I want to hear yours.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I really, I really want to hear yours too. I mean, I'll say for me, I think I, I think for me the root of that question comes back to a lack of conversation around how we feel as fundraisers. And so for me, it's, it's really that when we separate our emotions from the activities of fundraising, then we start to program these beliefs around the wrong problem. So, so in, in order to, you know, first of all, like normalize and validate that talking about money is, uncomfortable in our society, period. Right. Yeah. That is a super I, I mean 13 years of fundraising. No one ever even said that to me. That like, yeah. hey, if you feel if you get nauseous before your your big major donor meetings, that's actually totally normal. You know? And so for me it's not like it's not as much what are they being fed, but what are they being fed with missing this really critical component? Sure, there are quote-unquote, better fundraising strategies out there. But if you're digesting that strategy without any awareness around what's happening inside your body, inside your mind, with your emotions then it's just a pretty sheet of paper. Same with your impact report. I don't care how pretty of a template you created. You're not going to leverage its use if you have a narrative in your head that we communicate too much with our donors, we shouldn't send this outreach. We're just going to have it live on our website over here in case they, by chance, decide they want to look at it on a random Thursday that's a whole story that tons of fundraisers are making up because we're not even opening up this conversation around how we feel about this whole thing.
1: Yeah, and I and I've heard that said. I think we had a guest on here We've had several guests on here who've talked about the idea that fundraisers have never sort of reconciled their own sort of money story. And they've never sort of how does money sort of fit into your identity? Um, but but I got to be honest, Mallory, and I know I'm doing a, like a, a wholesale critique on those who get the privilege of standing in the front of you know, these conferences and stuff. I can't think of anyone probably in the first five, 10 years of my fundraising sort of career where I was generally in the audience and somebody had the privilege of speaking to me. I don't know that I ever had anyone at the front of the room talking to me about the importance of sort of reconciling my own relationship with money. And quite honestly, Mallory, I don't know that I can think of any of those individuals and several of them still sort of exist in our space. Now They, they, they're still very vocal in our space, I don't know that I have any sense any more now than I did then that those folks have reconciled their issues with money. I think they pretend money's not a part of what's actually going on.
2: I agree. And I think so I think like that, that's sort of at the core of what I'm suggesting is that we have what we need inside of us. But all of these controlling narratives of this sector are not allowing us to access it. Um, And so it's almost as opposed to like, what do we need to add? It's like, what do we need to remove? And I'm not suggesting like removing, you know, people or programs necessarily, I'm saying we're removing the internal blocks that are not allowing us to optimize all of the different things that we're using. And yeah, my hope would be, I would love for every consultant to talk about this as a component of their work, you know, or to even give people an opportunity to say, okay, I'm going to have you go do this thing. How does that feel? Like, what was the feeling you had right before you clicked send on that email? What does that tell you? Like, what's coming up for you? And I get it. Like, I'm I'm a coach. And so that is the, the framework that I come to things with. But I just think otherwise, we're just keeping ourselves in this, like, hamster hustle wheel because we're, we're kind of conditioning ourselves to take advantage of, like, these quick dopamine hits of, like, we get to check these boxes off. But we're not solving for the underlying issues in this sector around fundraising, which are rooted in this.
1: Just the... Do do we think that the – one of the things – again, we have not talked about asset-based thinking, something that I've been studying in this writing project that I'm currently working on. I've been studying that sort of stuff for quite some time and getting my head wrapped around sort of what the deficit mindset is. Mm-hmm. I actually first encountered it when I was doing work in urban education because it's the mm-hmm. way that we oftentimes approach – Children who come from marginalized and you know various mm-hmm. different you know if you're if you're not the average suburban white privileged kid who lives out in the suburbs in a well-to-do neighborhood, the deficit mindset is very likely to sort of have creeped into mm-hmm. the minds of your administrators and your teachers and stuff. And I t- I tend to think that when I think back on some of my earliest consulting clients, I tend to think that that sort of deficit mindset sort of played out in the way that these organizations. Went about their fundraising, mm. but they almost projected this deficit mindset, this sort of this, they almost projected it on their donors as well. Like I think sometimes we're mm. seated at the lunch table and I know that we've got well screening data that tells us these people are filthy rich, for example, mm. but sometimes I think we don't realize that our donors actually have resources. Mm. Like I think some of us actually think that our donors are broke. Mmm.
2: Yes, well I think we have a lot of misconceptions about money. Um I totally agree. I think there's so many um, uninvited people in our databases um, right. that, and so I completely, completely agree with you. And I would just argue that the fears that we hold that are going unaddressed are leading also to that mindset that's going unaddressed because how can we see assets when we're living in with this subconscious fear and that talking about money is inappropriate. And like when those are the narratives and stories that are sort of continuing controlling our daily experience. You know, fundraisers, I heard every day as a fundraiser, oh my gosh, you're a fundraiser. I could never be a fundraiser. I could never talk about money. I mean, I went to my daughter's daycare thing, like open house and the grandfather of one of the other students was like, "Oh, you're a fundraiser, don't ask me for money." Right? Like I think we really underestimate the amount of messages we're getting on a like daily basis that are making yeah. us feel small in our work. And so then to be able to to access what you're saying to say, "Okay, we're going to walk into that table with our assets in mind, not with this deficit." It feels so so far away from how we feel as a fundraiser.
1: And, and, okay, and I don't. I'm not picking. On, I'm not picking on Giving Tuesday. It's just the first thing that sort of comes to <laughs> mind when you look at the giving to. And, and direct response does this too. And everybody knows who listens to the podcast routinely knows that I've got issues with direct response. For example. Direct response and Giving Tuesday are two strat, and and special events do this too. But they have a tendency to yield some of these less than what I call meaningful gifts. They're just not the most mm-hmm. significant gifts. And so, if the average gift on Giving Tuesday is one hundred and sixteen dollars, does but that not but that gift doesn't necessarily for say eighty percent of the donors who are actually giving that gift, that gift doesn't actually actually accurately reflect what that donor is capable of giving. Is that part of this deficit mindset? Is that part of not being able to see back to your where you started this, Mallory? Is, is is our inability to asset map the fact that on Giving Tuesday, you had 100 donors give you $116 like the rest of the country does, but, but there's tremendous assets behind those gifts that could mm. be exp- exponentially more money, and you're just not re- wearing the right lenses to see that?
2: We said one of my favorite words, which is lenses. Um, (laughs) um, But I I think, I mean, I think it's all related, right? Like to me, if I had a a client come to me and say, you know, I feel like Giving Tuesday is throwing us sideways because we have all these high high financial capacity donors coming in at lower levels the be, you know because they're a part of this sort of community giving strategy my first question to them would be what belief are you holding about them giving on giving tuesday that has any impact on what their annual contribution to your organization might be like, like, because I think what's happening is that, and this happens, I hear this with monthly giving too. What if my major donors join my monthly giving program and then they aren't giving at their capacity because they're giving at a lower level on a monthly basis? But with good monthly giving programs, we're seeing 80% of monthly givers give again at the end of the year. And I think to your point around sort of centering the relationship, like where's the relationship going. You know, I don't think whether you do Giving Tuesday or not, whether you get where you have a high capacity donor giving $116 on a particular day of the year to be a part of a community giving day, I don't think that if you are stewarding and cultivating that relationship correctly, that should play any role in them being elevated to their highest capacity.
1: Yeah, I think my issue with Giving Tuesday is not that Giving Tuesday exists, it's that why does Giving Tuesday exist and it doesn't put direct response out of business, for example? Mm. I mean, when I think about the beginning of my fundraising career, what we could, what Giving Tuesday now is able to accomplish on a single day Mm. took an entire year with a direct mail program, and Mm. so why are we not and i think and i again i think this gets back to the the, the question of like kind of where you started mm. if if giving tuesday can generate essentially all that in what i call initial gift activity or what our firm mm. calls you know uh, lane 1 giving activity and then you can see the assets mm. that exist behind those gifts those mm-hmm. you know if you can see the opportunity those subsequent gifts behind that But what's happened is, is that we've just crowded our schedules. We've just crowded Mm -hmm. our strategies with a bunch of other tactics that generate the the same types mm. of gifts. Does that make sense? 100%. that's where I think the, that's where I think the assets. Mm. I don't need 12 giving Tuesdays, for example, right now. Mm. Perhaps I just need one, maybe a give day in the spring and a giving Tuesday in the fall will generate plenty of new donor acquisition, as we officially call it. And then mm. the rest of the year I can take people out to lunch and ask actually build meaningful relationships, actually see assets And I don't have to put any other mail in the mailbox.
2: Mm-hmm. I totally
1: there's my, agree. There's my soapbox for the day.
2: Uh, I totally agree. <laughs> I mean, I think all of those strategies should be analyzed within your annual plan, and yes. if you, and that's part of the sort of shiny object syndrome that we see. Right? Is like we see people get attracted to all these like lead or donor, first time donor acquisition, shiny objects, and then none of the other components are happening. So right. it's not about. I think, as you're saying, it's not about Giving Tuesday being good or bad, or community giving days being good or bad. It's about organizations taking that moment to say, what is, and, you know, I just did an interview with, with folks over at giving Tuesday and Canada helps. And they were really saying the first thing you should be asking yourself is why are you doing this? Like, yes. how does this fit into your overall plan? Yes. And I think that is a really important piece. Like the point is not to just check some box and, you know, get your board off your back. It's like, how does this fit in with your, with actually raising the money you are setting out to raise for the year?
1: But I think if you look at the the flawed way of thinking and you go back, you started this conversation with the idea that essentially, which is very consistent with, with the conversation I'm consistently having with a lot of people, and that is that we're being told a story that people are broke, that there's not enough resources mm. out there. Scarcity, scarcity, scarcity. But in some ways, we're relying on strategies that are not designed to necessarily create scarcity, but what they're designed to do is not necessarily create the most significant gifts either. Giving mm. Tuesday, folks, is not designed to generate – it's not there to convince you that your donors are rich or poor. It's just there to create the initial conversation. And mm. if our don't, if we could see beyond Giving Tuesday – if we could see the assets that sort of exist on the other side of that, and I'm guessing your initial comment, I, I don't think we've got fundraisers out there that actually understand because they're so obsessed with putting Giving Tuesday on the calendar. They don't understand, like you, I'm guessing you're saying, how, how many of them know that they are perfectly talented and capable of sitting mm-hmm. at the lunch table and asking Mrs. Smith for five times as much money as she gave on Giving Tuesday?
2: Yeah, yeah, I think they I think that fundraisers think there is a bigger secret to that than there is. And I think what you're getting at, I mean, tell me, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I think what you're getting at is actually this really important point, which does also go back to the underlying fears around fundraising. I think donor acquisition strategies feel less scary than cultivation and stewardship and asking for donors to increase their donation and identifying all the assets at the table with them. It feels much less personal doing a large scale campaign where people participate or they don't participate, asking people for lower level donation amounts. I- I would argue that those trigger less of the fears of the like deep seated fears that fundraisers hold than major gift cultivation and stewardship and those one-on-one conversations. And so I I feel like, and I want to hear if you disagree with this, but I feel like part of what happens then is that we keep doing more and more of that first thing, because what we're not saying is that We know the second thing is important. We know that whole year of having lunch and all those things are important, but we aren't really acknowledging how scary it feels and the rejection that comes up and how much more painful some of the experiences are in that process. And when we aren't even acknowledging that and preparing ourselves for that and how to be resilient to that, we're going to keep falling back on the types of fundraising activities that feel less scary for us, which are these first time Donor acquisition strategies.
1: Yeah, I think, and it, so so. I don't know if you're. I'm guessing. So you you have a loved one. You have a spouse. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a I have a I have my wife and I. We have these two four children. Um, we were talking about your little tyke before we hit the record <laughs> button, for example. Um it's like going on the first it's like new acquisition is the first date and mm-hmm. you have to have it every time I have some of these conversations somebody mm-hmm. feels like they got to raise their hand and say oh but it is important well of course it's important <laughs> I wouldn't have the relationship I have with my wife if I had mm-hmm. never gone on that first date right mm-hmm. and you can probably take us to a particular point in your relationship with your husband uh and tell us where that relationship started right mm-hmm. and and that's what got you to this but we just seem to want to keep going on the first damn date.
2: Yes. But I mean I, I Giving think
1: Tuesday a, is the yeah. first date.
2: <laughs> but I think that's a great example. I think that's a great way to compare it because think about how less how much less emotional we feel when someone doesn't want to go on a second date with us than when someone breaks up with us after two years.
1: Right. That first date, right? That first date is exciting. It usually happens at a particular time in life. There's all sorts of sort of layers that that we enjoy about the notion of the first date. But eventually, the the thing is, if you look at our renewal, if you look at, if you sort of look at the dating, and it's, it, some people would say, quit compa- comparing these sorts of things. But, but if you look at what dating is, eventually dating sort of loses its... Appeal it's allure the the first date certainly does eventually you want to be in more meaningful relationships with people, whether we 're talking about intimate relationships or not that's essentially what happens between a donor and the organization they support eventually that first date sort of that first engagement loses its allure, but we're also creating mallory, and I think this is why people like you and i are are becoming more. Maybe actually, because I don't know if people like you and I are sort of pushing the envelope on these discussions necessarily were able to sort of drive some of the conversations, say, 20 years ago, as much as we are now. Mm. But but the, 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 the <laughs> fundraisers are losing that. It, it's not just the donor, the fundraisers. I mean, listen to some of the, I think back on some of the guests that I've had here on the podcast. They are They repeatedly say it's transactional. They say it's transactional. I mean, go back to high school, but go back to college. How many times did we compare dating to transactional? I mean, it's the mm. same sort of lousy language, right? Mm-hmm. And I've got guests on here constantly say fundraising is transactional. And then I go back to what you said a few moments ago. Connect the dots between your notion of hating fundraising, the first date, and something being transactional. It, it, giving Tuesday is not supposed to just sort of be the end of the it's the start. It's not the end, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think look, I've seen forgiving Tuesday in particular, I've seen it done a number of ways where it where it sits as like a peak moment or an engagement strategy throughout the, the throughout the rest of the year even with their current donor base. But I agree that it is also a primarily used as a strategy on a fundraising front for donor acquisition. I think yeah. the thing that you're saying about this date though that piece and you know maybe people want us to get off this metaphor, but that is actually <laughs> so critical is that look that piece around when you are going beyond the first date and you're going beyond the second date or the third date you're yeah. you're increasing your level of vulnerability, you're increasing your level of risk in relationship and fundraisers, I think are not acknowledging. Yeah. So, and fundraisers are not acknowledging that that is the same emotional thing that's happening when they're trying to move their donors into larger forms of engagement. And if we don't acknowledge that, that that's happening emotionally to us, then I think we continue to avoid it. Right. Just like when people are avoiding. I I think that's why. Yeah.
1: I think that's why, let me just insert this, but don't get, you stay right where you're at. I think that's why people don't make uh, thank you calls. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Go there. Go there for me. (laughs)
2: 100%. I think it's why we avoid. All of these activities that are so impactful to our donors, but they create... so. Imagine after a date, are you going to send that... Are you going to be the first one to send that text? Like, we right, had a really right. great time. <laughs> like, are we going to meet up again? Right? Like, so... All of these things. You're invested. We, yes. You're invested. You care. You're in it. And so it becomes so scary because if they don't respond, does that mean they don't like you? If they, <laughs> right. if they don't get back yeah. to you in 48 hours, like they hate you. You definitely <laughs> said the wrong thing. Like, you know, they're going to tell all their friends. You're going to be ousted from your community. I mean, I coach folks around the deepest vulnerabilities that are brought up in fundraising. I hear stories like this all day, every day. Day about how worried people are because they haven't heard back from a funder in 72 hours. And this person didn't open the email link and they thought they had a good meeting. And did they have a good meeting? This is a deeply emotional experience for fundraisers. And when we try to separate who we are and our emotions and our humanity from the fundraising activity in our job, I think we're just we're we're deprioritizing the most impactful actions that we can be taking. We're not living into what's possible for us and our organizations, and it starts with really acknowledging the the different pieces at play.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, so I think about so the the consulting model that we use the 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 initial gift the gift you get on giving tuesday it's not about giving tuesday it's about picking up the phone and saying thank you for the gift you got on giving tuesday and and so the thank you It's not even about Mm -hmm. how much money you raised, Mm -hmm. but it's interesting to sort of think about what we just talked about for the last few moments, because there is a vulnerability about it. It's, it's not the ask. It's not even about the ask. It's about having come over onto the other side of the ask, having secured the gift. And then you have to actually, excuse me, you have to pick up the telephone. And this is why I'm oftentimes saying to organizations, uh, my, my business partner and I were saying this to a, a, a client, 3 or 4 weeks ago when we were doing some on, on-site training, we said to them, "No, I don't want your board members doing your thank you calls. <laughs> I want your fundraisers who've actually got to get into that vulnerable zone that you're referring to Mallory mm. and learn how to sort of enter right. into that space of saying, "Hey, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, thank you." Mm. And and I don't think I don't think these organizations um so it's 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 in between <laughs> how many of our nonprofit organizations out there sort of exist in this paradigm of what is contemporary fundraising practices where mm-hmm. the gift happens as many times as it does through direct response through giving Tuesdays through give days through special events the gift is never thanked is never you know appreciation is never thanked in that in that sincere and perhaps vulnerable sort of way that you're talking about. And then years later, they're invited to, a, a, to participate in a feasibility study for a capital campaign. I mean, that's essentially the way mm. that a lot of our relationships with donors work in mm. the way that the contemporary fundraising is designed it's what we call the messy middle. And the messy middle exists between that and the you know the thank you call and essentially the point at which you want to ask that person to give something perhaps more significant than you've ever imagined they would. Mm. Um and, and, and you've got me really thinking about how much so how much because this is the people the the audience, Mallory, that we're talk, that that's listening mm. to this, people are wearing these shoes, they're in these seats. Mm. Uh, Talk to to me before we wrap up this conversation. I mean, are you coaching them through? These are psychological things, aren't they?
2: Yeah. Yes. Yes. And so I'm a certified executive coach. So this is interwoven into my work in a lot of different ways. But the thing I will say is that there, you know, so many of the um, folks that I coach have been on growth journeys around their thoughts and beliefs in other ways in their life yeah. and perhaps have just not applied it to their fundraising work because they've sort of siloed that out of their of of their own sort of emotional growth in other ways. And so one thing I would say is like to just start to see that as like a piece of the puzzle in your life. And and the other thing is really even just the very first step around noticing how you feel. In certain moments, having awareness around how you feel and when you have those feelings starting to say, okay, what's the thought or the belief behind that feeling? Like, you know, because I'll say to people, so I, I spoke in front of a group of um students and parents once, and I said, it was about test anxiety. And I said, you know, chemistry is not stressful. And everyone was like, um that's why we're here, lady. And I was like, no, like chemistry is not stressful. What's stressful are the thoughts and the beliefs that you have about chemistry, right? I did poorly on the last test. So I'm going to do poorly on this test. I just don't understand science. The teacher likes Johnny more than me. The same thing is true about fundraising. Fundraising in itself is not stressful. What's stressful are the thoughts and the beliefs that we hold about fundraising. I'm not going to hit my budget mark. That person didn't respond to that email. I must have done something wrong in the last meeting, all of those things. And so just starting to bring some awareness and challenge the, like, the automatic beliefs that come up for us, I think is a really, really important first step. And then I would say the second step to that, and really these three things alone would make a huge difference acknowledge and validate how you feel say it's totally normal for me to be feeling nervous right now before i press send on this email this is a really vulnerable thing for me to be doing i am a little bit scared of them saying no okay like that's really normal doesn't mean i'm doing something wrong doesn't mean i shouldn't be pressing send it's like just those pieces the awareness the acknowledgement the validation that would start to break down
1: that these walls How many of the? Before I let you go, how many of the barriers? So you're coaching people through some deep shit. So um, as it relates to their their professional work. So I want to know how many of the barriers. How many of the barriers that you're walking people through who are in these fundraising roles or perhaps executive director roles or whatever roles they're in, how many of the barriers are internal, which is to say with their colleagues versus the the barriers with the donors? I mean, what are the mm. – what? which are the more significant barriers is what I'm saying? Um, because, yeah, and I don't want to say too much more than that, but – but I and I sort of know where I think it is. But where are the real fundamental barriers – that you're helping a client sort of overcome are they internal or external?
2: They're internal, but I would say they're internal related and the their experience with their staff sometimes triggers those internal barriers. The experience yeah. with their donor sometimes triggers those internal barriers, but it all comes back to the internal barrier, which is how are the thoughts and the beliefs that you hold about that circumstance informing how you feel and then ultimately how you show up? Because so many of what's happening or the circumstances that are happening around us, What makes them significant, stressful, anxiety-producing is the narrative we create in response to them. And so that's, yeah.
1: I'm sorry. Are you saying it's the internal story sort of inside our head or the internal relationships within the organism? Because I'm asking about the internal relationships with Mm. with our colleagues versus the Mm. relationship with the donor.
2: Yeah, I guess I... I guess it really varies because okay, okay. I work with folks who are single staff organizations and then I work with folks who are teams. I will say on teams with folks who have Bigger teams, or where the fundraising team and the marketing team works together. I do have to do some culture set around the way we talk about fundraising and like we like that we talk about fundraising in a really positive way here, that we believe that the movement of money is a powerful. Like, I do some kind of work around the language that folks are using together around fundraising to start to break down some of those assumed narratives that those like assumed sector-wide narratives. Um, And so I think it just depends. But I would say that all of those barriers, whether they're internal, external, or like internal to the organization, external to the organization, we are making a bigger deal about both of them inside our own heads.
1: Right. You're saying that the story in our head, regardless regardless of who we're sitting in front of, whether it's our boss or our board or a major donor, there's a story playing out. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're saying there's a there's a story playing out in our head that we're telling ourselves, that we've constructed for ourselves that's that's more that's more of the challenge than than any of those actors that we're sitting in front of
2: and that we can solve the other barriers much more easily once we have solved the narrative in our head. So the clarity we need around working with our boss, the clarity we need around working with our team, the clarity we need with working with our donors, all of that becomes so much more visible and, you know, and available to us when we're not bogged down by these scarcity-based narratives inside of us
1: and is the best thing to do like in a nutshell i mean is the is the is is part of the task and we'll wrap up on this is part of the 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 task to get that story out of our head and get that story on the table so that the story that's being told because i'm guessing there's still a story going on in that that uh, whoever that other actor is at the lunch table i'm guessing we've got to get those stories out of our head so that the per, the two people at the table can sort of share that story am i am 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 i Am I interpreting this correctly?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it depends. I think, you know, sometimes it's about getting, I do love when staff teams talk about their like fears and discomforts together. I think that and boards too, that is game changing. And I've seen it, I've seen it be really powerful with donors too. You know, I'm so nervous to have this meeting with you because I've been dreaming so long about what it would look like for us to work together in this really powerful way. And I'm hoping that we're both coming to this conversation today with that, with that dream in mind, like just be just being able to say that can lift this massive weight, um, and so. But I think sometimes, if you're not comfortable talking about your, your, you know, your fears or your emotions with your donors, just having that internal dialogue around it is going to reset you and your energy in the right way for when you sit down at that table.
1: Fascinating. Yeah, I, 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 it's very evident that you've thought about this very differently than than perhaps some of the. Um, Perhaps a lot of the people in our field, Mallory. I have really enjoyed this conversation today. We lose our listeners at about this particular point in the conversation. We usually <laughs> lose them between forty-five and fifty minutes. So I'm not going to try to pull anything else out of you. Um, but the other, the, the one of the things I'd like to point out to people in your seat is that you'll usually get more follow-up than I will. So somebody's been listening to this conversation, um, you know, 150, 200 downloads a day, and they're usually fundraisers. So who is that person you want reaching out to you saying hey let's have a let's have a conversation after i heard what you had to share on the on the podcast
2: i think if you heard this conversation and you know that this is true for you like something inside you bubbled up and you're like ooh i think this might be me those are my people and they tend to know when they hear this narrative and they hear some of these frameworks they're like oh yeah i think that <laughs> is what's getting in my way um yeah. so you'll know <laughs> <laughs> and,
1: and and how would you how would you like them to find you?
2: Oh, you can find me on um Instagram, which is underscore Mallory Erickson or MalloryErickson.com. Um those are the the best ways to get in touch, or LinkedIn, of course, Mallory Bressler Erickson. I would love to meet you and um and hear about what you're what you're experiencing.
1: Fantastic. Mallory, it has certainly been a wonderful conversation. I have really enjoyed this. You're always welcome back.
2: Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was such a fun conversation for me as well. So thank you, Jason.